Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Thomas, a programme director at the Institute for Government, and this is IFG Live. IFG Live is our platform for holding the events, debates and discussions that would, in a different era, be happening in our building in London. Thank you all for joining us and thanks in particular to PA Consulting for supporting this event. Today we're tackling the modest subject of shaping the state after coronavirus, or perhaps that should actually be shaping the state to live alongside coronavirus. What will the response to the pandemic do for trust in government, for citizens' expectations of government, the size of the state, the role of digital and IT, remote working um, and uh, evidence-based policymaking and the role of experts? What about the state's relationship with uh, business and uh, with the workforce and uh, also changes to the civil service? So just a few things for us to uh, get our teeth into there, but um, we'll do our best to tackle them over the course of the next hour. We have a brilliant panel to uh, uh, help us grapple with those uh, uh, huge questions. Uh, Panos Kakoulis, who is the chief executive elect uh, of PA Consulting, uh, is going to kick off with uh, some introductory thoughts. Then we'll hear from Ben Page, who is the chief executive at Ipsos Mori. Then Vicky Price, who is an economist and business consultant and former joint head of the UK Government Economic Service. And then Gus O'Donnell, Lord O'Donnell, who uh, was Cabinet Secretary and Head of the Civil Service from 2005 to 2011 and is also uh, an economist. Uh, and then we'll open it up uh, and have uh, some questions uh, from uh, all of you, which you can submit and please do submit them through the uh, Q&A function that you should see on your screens when the menu comes up. So uh, to kick us off, I'm going to hand over to uh, Panos Kakoulis to set some uh, introductory uh, uh, context and to, uh, to, to set up some of the questions we should be thinking about. Good morning, everyone. Great to be with you all. Thank you to the Institute for Government for hosting today's discussion. And thank you to all of our panelists. Now, today I want to talk to you all about an opportunity, a unique opportunity we may never have again, an opportunity to rethink the very notion of what the public sector is. And in doing so, to become more purpose-led, more adaptive and more collaborative. Now, the response by our public servants in the face of the unprecedented challenges makes clear that under pressure, government can and does find ingenious ways to adapt and deliver. It's done this by tapping the ingenuity of its people, its departments, local councils, the wider world, including the public it serves, and in fact, the private sector as well. And that response, well, that's also heightened people's expectations of what government can and should be able to do. Expectations, they were already increasing based on people's experiences in the private sector. And those new norms are gonna stick around long after the immediate crisis has passed. Now, there's a warning here. With expectations high, any missteps could see that genuine opportunity being lost. We've already seen some of that trust eroding and those who neglect opportunity can rarely command it a second time. So the question of the moment, how can the UK public sector become more purpose-led, more adaptive and more collaborative? Now to get the discussion started, I'm gonna propose four substantive, immediate and urgent opportunities for departments, local authorities, 
arms length bodies, indeed anyone involved in serving our citizens. Number one, speak and act with greater impact. With robust public support for government intervention and those high levels of trust, the sector has got a unique opportunity to harness its purpose and deliver with renewed impact. It can and should be an enabler of change and drive growth. Now, in recent times, we've seen the world's global corporations starting to emphasise more and more purpose over profit. They see purpose as a key to winning new customers, engaging employees and to building companies that create a much better world. The public sector, we've always had purpose at the heart of everything it does. We just need to give it a greater voice to help public sectors find it, harness it and use it to unleash their ingenuities in ways large and small. Now, personally, I've spent over 30 years with working, working with some of those big global corporations in the private sector. They, they're finally grasping what you've known all along. What a great opportunity there is for the public and private sector to work much more closely together and have an even greater impact. So that's number one, speak and act with greater impact. Number two, radically rethink to meet evolving priorities. The pandemic, that's underlined the need for government and how effectively it can respond to new challenges in an agile way. Case in point, the dramatic shift to remote working. But here's a challenge. As citizens adjust to those new realities, their appetite for the old is going to quickly disappear. And that's why it's crucial that as the public sector rethinks to meet those evolving priorities, it keeps citizens at the heart of everything it does, their wants, their needs, including what's likely to be a much greater demand for government to deliver services electronically. Of course, that also means thinking about how we measure what citizens value so we know how best to respond. So that's number two, radically rethink to meet those evolving priorities. Number three, unlock efficiencies and harness the new talent. Less than four weeks after challenging companies to assist in the rapid development and manufacture of ventilators, and that's an effort I had the privilege of being part of personally, the first ventilator was rolling off the production line. It took just nine days to build the NHS Nightingale Hospital in the Excel Centre in London. And it took even fewer to mobilise thousands of GPs to support the COVID-19 response. And I challenge anyone who argues those aren't amazing accomplishments. And there were many factors that contributed to that success, but chief among them was the speed at which diverse teams of experts came together, they got closer than ever before to the front line, and they had access to the right technology to get the job done. So that's number three, unlock efficiencies and harness that new talent. And finally, number four, encourage and incentivize greater collaboration. Recent events, they've broken silos and they've allowed for much greater mobility of skills and innovation. Now, might it be possible to break the deadlock and pull the skill, skills that matter the most? To incentivize collaborative behaviors? To perhaps even apply the sharing economy thinking borrowed from the private sector to develop sets of commercial incentives that will build critical mass? Here, we can look at how our colleagues have responded to the challenge of national security. We're seeing new ways of working that make the best use of scarce skills and build trust amongst colleagues across various branches of government 
approaches that could and should be replicated across the entire public sector, leveraging flexible multidisciplinary talents and technologies in line with rapidly shifting requirements. So that's the fourth and final one, encourage and incentivize greater collaboration. Now, PA, we were born out of the ingenuity required to meet the war effort 75 years ago. Today, we're faced with a new challenge and a unique opportunity for our institutions to become more purpose-led, more adaptive and more collaborative. We're going to need the support of business and citizens. Everyone is going to be part of it. And the road ahead is going to be anything but easy. But I'm an optimist. The ingenuity we've seen over the past days and weeks, well, that proves, it proves what we're capable of doing together. Now's the time to act and we will. I thank you all for joining today and I look forward to a very inspiring discussion. Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you, uh, Panos. That uh, sets, the, uh, sets the context really well and gives us, um, gives us a, a, a framework of four things there to, uh, to think about. I'm going to turn now to uh, ben Page of Ipsos uh, Mori. Uh, ben, Panos uh, talked there about putting the citizens at the heart of, um, uh, of, of the response to the pandemic. What, what do the people want? Uh, do they want a return to normality or for uh, lives to be different after we come through uh, all of this? Ben. Um, I think the way we would look at this is to look at the trends that were already present before the virus and then see how those um, are, have been affected by all of the change that we've seen over the last few months. So even before COVID-19, there was clear appetite after a decade of relative austerity for a more muscular and indeed even regulatory state. Um, there was a marked shift to thinking that the government wasn't spending enough money. In both the British Social Attitude Study and our polling, you could see support for public spending to rise, even if personal taxes went up. Um, in particular, there's a lot of support or clear support for hypothecated taxes for the NHS. Some people listening to this will say, then why didn't Jeremy Corbyn win by miles in December? But uh, a couple of points on that. The first point is that Boris Johnson, of course, immediately he became leader of the Conservative Party, promised more spending on the NHS, on policing and education. He almost ticked off the, the three top things that the public were prioritising for additional spending. And secondly, of course, the point is that the public is not really ideological, particularly, about the size of the state. There are certain things in Jeremy Corbyn's manifesto that are actually popular, taxing wealthy people more, um, uh, nationalising the railways, those are popular things. But the key point here is competence. Whoever is going to do those things has to be seen as competent. So Tony Blair wins in 1997 with as many people, whatever he said, believing that he would put up taxes as believed that Neil Kinnock, who lost in 1992, would put up taxes. Exactly the same proportion of people expected taxes to go up under Blair as under Kinnock in 92. But of course, Blair wins by a landslide because he had managed to convince people that he would be competent uh, in, that, in that taxation. So there is a, an appetite for a muscular state doing more things. I think we've got lots of dysfunctional markets that need fixing by government. The state is going to clearly stay bigger uh, how it's you know how it sustains itself I will leave to others uh, better than me to explain things like modern monetary theory and whether that means that we can go on borrowing money forever I was fascinated to see that we are borrowing massively more amounts of money as a government 
than we were in the 2008 crisis and, and the aftermath. And we still have three times as many people willing to lend us that money at what seems very low interest rates. So I think broadly there is an appetite for competent government to spend a lot more and to deal with some of the consequences and some of the hysteresis of the consequences of the last decade in, in certain areas of public spending. Uh, you know, so that the public are up for it, it but it, the government will have to take people with it, I think, in doing these things. And, you know, there, but there is no ideological problem at the moment with the government doing things like paying the wages of a very large proportion of the private sector workforce. Uh, you know, the public are not are not sort of a purist and ideological about this in any way at all. They are utterly pragmatic. And so they are ready to be led. We could see a group there is, you know, there is space for something like a Green New Deal if a government was to propose it. Uh, this country is already, for example, producing uh, masses of renewable energy in a way that is one of the best countries out of the OECD uh, top 20. So all sorts of things that interventions that we could do. And I think it's, it's an amazing time. And as you say at the beginning, there is an opportunity for government to do some kind of reset. Uh, we do, we can't assume that the world has completely changed. People's values don't change overnight. But I think what's interesting is that you have both already an appetite for a more activist uh, and, and, more, and more spending from government. And of course, a willingness to perhaps take, take a look at things like society, at, you know, social care. I mean, it, social care is another one that clearly was in the inbox to be fixed for a very, very long time. I don't know how long we've been waiting for the for the green paper or the white paper on on social care. Although I must be said, I, I'm not utterly convinced that we'll finally get that because the huge number of deaths in care homes, again, it's it's documented, but it doesn't seem to sort of cut through to public consciousness. So, but but lots of appetite for the government to do something and lots of opportunity. The end. Brilliant. Thank you, Ben. Appetite and opportunity creates uh, moments of uh, potential change. Um, thank you for that. Uh, Vicky, uh, now, um, how might the economy be uh, different? I mean, is this is this a crisis from which eventually the economy will emerge more sustainable and, 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 and stronger? Um, uh, or uh, will the, uh, the, the road back be a very long and very uh, difficult one? Uh, over to you, Vicky. I think this just shows the difficulty that economists are having right now. But I think it is worth going back a little bit like Ben did in looking at uh, what was going on just before this pandemic hit. And it's worth remembering that we were in a slowdown phase already. Uh, yes, there had been some of that uncertainty regarding Brexit and so on, uh, which we were still coping with at the time. But uh, we had had at least uh, quite a decisive victory by uh, Boris Johnson, the Tory party in the December election. And it looked as if the market, certainly in the UK, were uh, recovering a little bit and then we got the actual news that even January was pretty flat uh, and then of course we had floods in February so that wasn't particularly good and then we were hit by the coronavirus and there were still concerns of course about the trade environment that we were going to be finding ourselves in particularly because China and the US had been uh, sort of having this trade war for quite some time which was affecting quite substantially many of our trading partners including of course Germany and a number of countries in Europe we're seeing contractions in GDP during 2019 um, and uh, what we were seeing was that there wasn't huge improvement in the beginning of uh, the year and then of course we were hit by the crisis and the interesting thing for economists is to uh, you know, try and guess what the reaction of businesses is likely to be. We're hearing from panels how 
uh, good it is that businesses are working with government now. Until then, they hadn't been listened to, particularly on the Brexit front. Uh, suddenly they are, but uh, how they will react to this and what will remain of businesses by the time we get out of it, of sorts, um, will be a big question mark. And what happened, of course, is that uh, at the end of January, uh, as we were leaving the EU, uh, the Bank of England was forecasting growth of just 0.8% and higher spend, higher borrowing rather by the government uh, was coming as a result of that, just 0.8% growth. Uh, we now have the Bank of England just a little bit later uh, forecasting growth, or at least one of the scenarios is for uh, growth, well, negative 14% this year, uh, possibly picking up quite substantially next year if that scenario works. Uh, but adjusting from growth of just 0.8% to such a substantial fall is something that we haven't had to do before. Um, and that requires an awful lot of ingenuity in terms of trying to decide what uh, the reaction of businesses might be in the longer term, what the reaction of investment is likely to be in the longer term. And of course, it puts into question whether uh, whatever the governments are doing all around the world is going to do it really because we just don't know and I remember at the time of the financial crisis when we just threw everything we could into the economy but we knew we were trying to do just two simple things first of all save the financial system and the second thing is ensure that the credit crunch that was coming wasn't affecting demand and we were uh, basically helping the economy recover but at least we sort of knew what we were doing up to a point we were still at that time throwing money at the problem not knowing quite what would stick and now we're doing it in abundance uh, I don't think that anyone who's advising government, who's listening to this, can really feel secure uh, about the impact that some of these policies will have. If you look at the uh, geographical distribution of some of the pain, uh, and particularly when you look at work, uh, in London, people have been able to stay at home and work much more happily than is the case in many other places. Manufacturing, which people don't talk about very much, uh, is suffering or has suffered with closures. Uh, it's beginning to recover a little bit now, uh, but it has meant that loads and loads of people have not been able to work or have been laid off. And quite a lot of um, different type of inequality has crept in because we've suddenly realised that we have loads of uh, people in our working environment uh, accounting for this very low unemployment rate we still seem to have in the figures that came out today who work in very insecure jobs uh, and where, of course, the hit of those uh, young and women uh, and also those who are facing customers normally has been hugely disproportionate to that of the better off. And if you look at the spread of people who've been able to work from home uh, and you put them against the incomes that they have, their average earnings, you can see that the higher they get paid, the easier it is for them to stay at home. That has huge implications for various sectors for the future. Will some of those recover if the lockdown persists in those uh, sectors or not. So exactly what the path will be uh, for recovery, we don't know. And there is, of course, an extra dimension, which is the international one. Countries have gone into lockdown a bit earlier than us in some cases, uh, and we see China already recovering. So there's something positive there, if you want to call it that, even though obviously we've all suffered from virus effects that came from there originally. Um, uh, but nevertheless, there is some uh, improvement taking place, but many other parts of the world have gone into this lockdown phase or the health scare after China. And what the IMF is now forecasting, having changed its own figures from minus three for this year to, sorry, for plus, from plus three for this year to minus three, is that unlike what happened in the financial crisis, both the developed and the developing world 
is going down at the same time. And that will make it harder for us to recover. So we're in the business as experts of scenario planning, no longer forecasting because we just can't. Thank you. Brilliant. Thanks, uh, Vicky. Uh, lots of food for thought there. Um, uh, not, so, not so much optimism, perhaps, but um, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get there. Um, uh, Gus, as a, a former top civil servant, um, trying to uh, do the uh, uh, classic civil service job of synthesising all of that and putting it to some, uh, prioritising it and uh, putting some policy choices to uh, the Prime Minister, what would you be putting at the top of uh, his inbox if you were Cabinet Secretary? Sure. Number one for the Prime Minister, the message I give him is, which is, hasn't come up yet, which would be take it easy. This is the Prime Minister who's been in intensive care. If you think about things that are stressful in life, moving jobs, moving uh, where you live, having a baby, new partner, um, you know, a crisis that he'd never imagined, one of the biggest facing governments for uh, more than my lifetime. So he needs to pace himself uh, and use uh, the people around him which is, you know, the civil service and all his advisors um, say thank you to those. You know, we're saying thank you to the NHS. We're saying thank you to the visible and the immediate. But there's lots of people behind the scenes. The furlough scheme couldn't be going if Treasury and HMRC hadn't done some an amazing things. DWP must be working their socks off. So for God's sake, say thank you to them. Don't get obsessed by the visible and the immediate would be my thing to the prime minister. You know, this. If, if I were to criticise what's happened so far, I'd say it's been dominated by the visible and the immediate, namely it's all about COVID. But actually what we've done has taken resources away from the rest of the NHS, which has had implications. The analysis of all of this and what you see on the press conferences is dominated by the medical scientists. Um, now, I'd say Prime Minister, you now need to put the social back in social science, right? Get away from just listening to the scientists, the recovery is going to be all about how you manage the next stage. It's interesting that we've never had a recession like this induced by government itself. So government chose to do things in order to stop uh, us going out to pubs and restaurants, which reduced spending, which hit GDP quite dramatically. The recovery will become come because government releases those lockdown issues. And so GDP will recover. To be honest, GDP is going to be a pretty irrelevant thing. And as I think Vicky was hinting, the macro models really don't work in these circumstances. So I'd, I'd advise the OBR just to forget about that. I've been talking to some macro modelers. This is all about scenario planning, as Vicky was saying. This world is a very different world. The one thing we know about this recovery is it's going to be very jobs poor. That's going to be the big issue. Forget looking at GDP figures because they're going to bounce back. They're going to come down terribly and bounce back very fast. Unemployment's the big thing. He needs labour market policies. We need to stop the scarring effects of long-term unemployment. That'd be my big message to the Prime Minister and to government departments. In doing that, be radical. Right? If, you, if you're not going to do some radical things now, nothing's going to change. We'll go back to exactly where we were before. And as again, Vicky said, I don't think that's a sustainable place. That's a place that was leading us to not solving our climate change problems. So uh, that will mean a radical look at taxation, a radical look at this new world where interest rates are going to be approximately zero for a very long time. That means 
infrastructure is going to be very important and very easily financed. So the government should be looking at this recovery, thinking about how does it counter the jobs issue? And I would say that means let's do some green investments. Let's look at energy efficiency. Let's look at the existing housing stock, doing things there. Let's look at a national investment bank, all sorts of ideas like that make a huge difference to what we're doing. Um, also, you need to be realistic. You know, the um, there's lots of things that, that people are talking about that they'd like the new world to be, but what's it likely to be like? And if we don't change anything, it's likely to revert pretty much to where it was. Subject to what Ben was saying is when there are existing trends, like moving towards more digital, more working from home, yes, we'll get more of that, certainly. But unless we change things radically, you know, the chances are we go back to where we were. So we need a government to be quite radical, to be prepared to look at the long term. And they need to be facing up to the fact that in the immediate recovery, we're going to be looking at trade offs along the way. You know, we're not going to wait till the reproduction rate goes to zero. We're going to have to move before that and there'll be trade offs there, which uh, balance the economy. The long term costs of some of the things we're doing in terms of unemployment, uh, the well-being impact are pretty dramatic. And some of us have written about these at more length and they, they've really been underplayed, I think, in this crisis so far. The media have been concentrating and showing us the visible and the immediate. And you can understand why, from a political point of view, you're going to do that. You know, that's very much what's got high salience, as I'm sure Ben will tell us. But actually, over the next two to three to four years, you'll see that we'll be living with the impact of some of the things we've done now. So uh, please, as we come out of this sustainable recovery, and the final thing will be don't fight the last war. When you come out of this, the spending review needs to concentrate on not just issues about getting us more ventilators or whatever. The bigger issue will be how do we spend more on prevention? How do we actually ensure that money is spent, not just you know there in the risk registers, but actually spent? And you know that requires a big change of mindset. A lot of that money that goes on prevention doesn't give you any immediate political payoff. So we need to do that rather than gear ourselves up brilliantly to handle COVID-20, whatever it is. Uh, we need to be prepared for the fact that the next crisis may well be something completely different. It may be something to do with cyber. The principle that I think we failed in is actually delivering on understanding there are risks, but then not putting the money into spending on prevention, uh, which necessarily in an ideal world shows no good, no, no usage. You know, it's, it's like insurance. Uh, the ideal thing is you pay the premium, but you don't have to have any claims. So. I'm going to shut up there. I could go on for a long time about this. Brilliant. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Gus. Uh, and I suppose the question that comes to uh, my mind from that is, is, is this a government that is prepared to uh, be radical, to, uh, uh, to um, uh, address those questions and to think long term in the way that, uh, that you uh, suggest? I mean, my, my sense is that it's, it, it, it is a government that would not want to let a crisis go to waste, whether it has the kind of means and, uh, uh, and, and ability to, to do that. But it feels like um, uh, in terms of the kind of wiring of the state and thinking long term, it's, if, if you think back to 
leveling up and previous uh, sort of ambitions of, of the government, uh, you get a sense that they want to try and, and, and use this crisis to uh, to drive some of those things. Do you do you, do you think uh, do you think they will? Do you think they've got the appetite and the, the means to do it? Uh, maybe uh, uh, Ben first, and then uh, uh, I'll come back to others. Well, they've, they've, they've shown that they can, they found a magic money tree that Mrs. May said didn't exist and they fed it steroids. I mean, so the, the Chancellor is doing things that if, if somebody had discussed with him that he would be the Chancellor doing these things, uh, you know, in the beginning of December, uh, this would have been astonishing. So they clearly can. I think the, the criticism that is sometimes made of the number 10 operation is obviously that it's very much a campaigning organisation around communications rather than the long slog of some of these big macro changes that we're now talking about. But they're, they're not short of ideas. The, the, the challenge that they set themselves of levelling up the red wall seats in the north of England was phenomenal. And given the likely Im outputs of or the, the impacts of COVID-19, where you know, it's some of those constituencies that, if anything, may suffer more uh, under under COVID-19 than other other parts of Britain, perhaps. You know, the challenge is the challenge is there. The challenge is real. And they now actually have an opposition to deal with as well, which they didn't have previously uh, effectively. So I think they I, there's no reason why they can't. Um, the question is, you know, can they can they make time to actually early on in a in a in a in, a, in an administration to actually sit back and use to create a bit of space to do things rather than going frenetically on the you know the next three word message is this. Yes, thank you. All um, we've got loads of questions coming in uh, from uh, from uh, people watching. So thank you for all of them. So I'm going to go straight to to those questions. And there's a there's a cluster of questions that I might um Vicky ask you to think about first uh, around. Uh, the balance between central control and uh, government supporting bottom-up solutions. Somebody's asked about um, uh, how successful uh, the crisis has shown uh, centralised control versus bottom-up solutions. And Francis de Souza has also asked whether the state will um, en uh, encourage more community responsibility. Uh, David Falcon uh, has asked whether it will lead to a revival in local government, picking up on the experience of, of other countries. He mentions uh, France and whether um, there's more space for decisions to be taken at the at the most appropriate level. And I've uh, I've just seen uh, Jonathan Flowers has asked about um, uh, the prospects for uh, more devolution, including fiscal devolution. So there's a whole kind of bucket of stuff there. Are we going to be heading for a more centralised state or are we going to be heading for a more devolved state and more community uh, responsibility? V Vicky, uh, do you want to have a go at that first? I think if one, we're looking at the evidence, uh, then you would really need to go for much more decentralisation because centralisation hasn't really worked. Uh, and we are quite clearly much more centralised than many other countries. And if you look at uh, even tax receipts that go, that are collected locally, that stay with localities. We are one of the lowest in Europe, certainly. And if you look at public investment, uh, which is directed into uh, regions uh, and which is decided by the regions, we are again one of the lowest countries uh, in terms of the percentage that goes there um, across, across Europe, most definitely, and not uh, wider than that as well. So we are too centralised and it has been shown not to work in the case of testing, for example, and in controlling uh, the virus. And there are all these differences across. And we've been struggling with that, of course, in government when I was there too, in terms of where do you put the balance? I mean, my view was probably a mistake to get rid of the regional development agencies, even though they weren't perfect. Uh, I think there's a lot more that we need to be collecting in terms of information what happens locally, 
from an economic viewpoint, I mean, obviously not understanding what the regions are doing makes absolutely no sense if you're going to be having a sort of uh, you know, government industrial policy uh, because it just isn't going to work. Uh, but you need the links to be still there. I think regions, if they become too independent, lose this network effect, if you like. There's probably still going to need to be quite a lot of uh, transfer from the centre to the regions anyway, because many of them will have been affected very badly by what's been going on right now. Uh, and uh, you also will need, um, I'm sorry for the Londoners, to have this transfer from London and a good, uh, well, a, a a prosperous London, actually, to be able to transfer quite a lot of money from London elsewhere. And we know there are problems with productivity differences, etc. So the regional aspect is an absolute must if we are going to have a sustained growth path in the future, because the way we have been developing before, if you just look in the last 10 years, the gap between London and Southeast and the rest widened rather than narrowed. Thank you, uh, Vicky. I'm going to come to Gus in a minute, but I have the benefit, um, which uh, which people uh, viewing won't have uh, won't have had, of seeing Ben vigorously shaking his head through uh, some of that. So I'm going to ask Ben to come in, and then and then and then come to Gus. And Gus, I'm going to throw in an extra question to you about Parliament, which Paul Tyler, Lord Tyler, has asked. Um, we haven't talked about Parliament yet. What's what's Parliament's role in this? But Ben, you first on the the devolution centralisation point. Well, I agree with I agree with Vicky's uh, solution of recommending some, you know, more devolution and more more regional control of, of various parts of government policy. But I'm just sceptical about it happening. I mean, the, what what we generally see in crises is is central government taking you know, even more control. In a sense, that's what you've seen. I mean, I think there, there is an issue which some people have asked in the questions around whether the other administrations in the other countries of the United Kingdom you know, that's starting to flag up that potentially the, the United Kingdom is straining. But nevertheless, if we were looking at English devolution, I'm just deeply sceptical. And indeed, when we ask the public, despite always saying that they would like more local control, they always want everything to be the same everywhere. We once asked about grass cutting in parks and the people would quite like the government to guarantee that all parks have the same length grass. Uh, and to be honest, there is no sign of any movement in this direction. And if you ask people, do you want to give your local council the same fiscal devolution that Scotland has, which isn't much, they don't even really want to give it that. So I'm not expecting in this crisis and this huge economic crisis that we're going to be going into, the recession that is almost inevitable, that you're going to see central government sort of letting go and particularly no fiscal devolution, sadly, very sadly. But that's my prognosis. Thanks, Ben. Uh, Gus, what about on the on the sort of central local uh, debate um, uh, or regional debate and also uh, uh, the role of uh, Parliament in responding to the crisis? Sure. On the, I mean, Vicky and Ben have summed it up, really. My, my career, I spent many times in the Treasury with reports looking at how we would decentralise um, tax revenue because there was this massive imbalance. And if you could get regions to keep more of the revenue they collected, there's all sorts of good incentive structures that could be built up. Lots of reports, a bit like um, social care, you know, doing that report. Lots of reports saying obvious things. <clears throat> the politics never worked, and that was across different parties. Um, so it's one of those things I'd say, it's definitely a good idea. It's what we'd like to happen. Is it likely to happen? Probably not. Um, uh, but I think we could learn a lot from this sector about, uh, about from this crisis, about who's done well, you know, what's worked well, things at community level versus um, national, 
Um, there are aspects of dealing with a, uh, a corona crisis which clearly have to be dealt with nationally. You know, there are, the crisis doesn't uh, stop at the end of London, you know, um, so we, we need to do things like that. I'll move on to another one. I'll come back to Gus in a, in a, mm. in a second on, on, on Parliament. But I, I was going to ask the panel about the, um, the sort of social side of it. And it's it's summed up in a, a question here from Joan uh, Link, uh, which I'll read out in full because it, 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 it points to the uh, uh, social uh, and differential impact uh, of, of, of the crisis. The social contract was badly damaged, if not broken before the crisis. How can we ensure that the most vulnerable people, the homeless, the addicts, the people with serious mental illness, the badly uh, uh, off and the disabled, the very old, get a better deal than in the last 10 years and maybe help to be more useful to wider society themselves? Leveling up doesn't seem to hit the mark as it's mainly about working people uh, as far as I can see. Uh, Vicky, do you think there is an opportunity to, um, uh, to look at that sort of social contract with the most uh, vulnerable uh, in a different way? Of course, there is an opportunity. Uh, it does require some cash. So uh, now we seem to be finding money, you know, left, right and centre. I mean, after all, remember, I was actually quite surprised when uh, Matt Hancock came in one of those uh, afternoon conferences and said, right, we are wiping out uh, all the deficits, 13 and a half billion of the National Health Trust. So great. Um, now, if that money is available and can be found, then why can't you do something better in terms of the social contract? Uh, will it happen? I mean, I'll be now Ben and Gus in my answer. No, um, unless there is a serious push by people. I don't know what Ben thinks about the, the, the view of the population at large, uh, unless sort of communities and, and, and the result of the uh, COVID crisis makes us all really want to be nicer to people, have a better society, uh, then that might work. Uh, but we've only just voted the government in. It's going to take, I think, a little bit of time for their spots to really change. Ben, what do you uh, think about that? The, I think the challenge is that um, clearly we've just elected, uh, particularly helped by older people, mm -hmm. a, go a government which necessarily didn't ah. particularly have the agenda that we're now talking about. Having said that, there is a real, you know, there is a sign of more um, uh, sort of neighbourhood neighbourliness during the crisis. There is more visibility for people who make things happen in society and don't earn very much money, whether they're delivery drivers, care home workers, people working in, you know, in our in our distribution networks, our public transport, etc. And it's, I suppose, it's just possible. My my problem is, or the challenge is, I think that when many people, when there's a, a potential huge surge in unemployment at the end of the furlough period, because how many of those restaurant chains are going to turn out to be viable when people are too scared to go out and spend money, either because they're worried about their own jobs or they're worried about the endemic virus. When we're that anxious, if we're going to be as anxious about the economy as we have in previous recessions, will we feel able to support a much more generous and enabling state? We may, because there are millions of people who are now experiencing the delights of universal credit and our claimant system who have not ever ever done that before. So we might see that shift, but we haven't seen it yet in public opinion. I think there's there is scope to do it. Um, there's a you know there's a massive issue about how we look after older people generally, and I'm by including in that I will include myself at 55. Given that before the crisis you could see that unemployment fell off a cliff at 55. Uh, you know, I'm sorry, employment fell off a cliff at 55. So there's all sorts of things that we need to do, both for an ageing population 
uh, and indeed to help young people whose experiences in work are going to be pretty ghastly, uh, as they have been in previous recessions. And Gus has already talked about the impact that has on their earnings over their over the you know over, over a decade or more. But the question is, if we're all feeling under the cosh with the economy and worried about our personal finances, will we feel able to support a government to spend even more money on some of these deserving groups? I, you know, personally, I would hope so, but let's see what happens. Yes, there are. I mean, related to that, there are quite a lot of questions about um, uh, GDP and preoccupation with GDP and whether actually. Uh, and I'll uh, I'll bring uh, Gus in on this if he's if he's back because uh, I know he will have uh, views on the value of GDP as opposed to other uh, measures. But whether that is a barrier to dealing with the four key issues that um, Panos set out at the start, um, and whether it's uh, and whether it's a sort of enabler or a uh, or, or a barrier to to responding to some of these. Uh, social uh, pressures. Uh, Gus, if you're if you're back with us, uh, have you got uh, uh, have you got something mm -hmm. you want to add on that? Well, and you can pick up the that. Parliament point as well. <clears throat> Thank you. Um, so on the Parliament point, all I would say on that is, um, when you've got a large majority, uh, the power shifts towards the executive and away from Parliament, uh, and uh, you you see that both in the Commons and the Lords, um, and you've seen the reverse of that when there was no overall majority suddenly Parliament is, is really important and at least has negative power. It can block things, um, hence the um, impasse on Brexit. Uh, now we've got a large majority, um, then the government really is in a position to do what it likes. It's harder to hold it to account. It's particularly hard to hold it to account when you're doing it virtually. Um, virtual Parliament is is it's just not the same. And I think, you know, we would all hope that it will be safe enough for us to go back and to start really scrutinising the government. I'm sure the select committees will do this. I just hope to God they do it in a sensitive way that we we don't have people saying, oh, well, with hindsight, you should have done this and all the rest of it. We need to understand that people are trying to make the best decisions they can on the basis of the evidence available at the time. Even so, there may be things that went wrong, but it's it's really, we don't want a kind of blame game where with hindsight, we've learned this. On the whole GDP thing, well, you know, when when the GDP measure was first put together, it was, it was a measure of activity. And uh, Simon Kuznets, who's the economist putting it together, said, for God's sake, don't use this as a success measure. I paraphrase. Um, and it's not a success measure, and we'll be able to see that through this period more dramatically than ever. What we've observed, thanks to God bless David Cameron, David Halpern, and all those people that put together the measurement of well-being, which the ONS now do regularly, we know that during this crisis, well-being has fallen off a cliff, which is exactly what you'd expect. People's satisfaction, their happiness with their lives, their anxiety levels have gone up, mental health issues, really big <clears throat> so i'm going to be tracking what happens to that it's come back a bit uh, as uh, people got used to lockdown but we're still some way off where we would normally be if you were focusing this by looking at the well-being of the people you'd care about the inequality issues you'd care about mental health uh, you'd care about the long-term uh, consequences of not having a job not just because of income but because of what it does to your sense of self-worth and well-being then lets you get into the debate about the trade-offs that happen. You know, we know that 
actually the conversation that no one's prepared to have publicly is all about value of life we know that we have to value life we do it in nice national institute of clinical excellence where we have a quality adjusted life year we've explained in academic papers how to do this using well-being years and you can then come to some trade-offs and understanding of what's the best way to cope with all of this and it gives you a kind of framework as to how government should set its spending priorities you know as we go forward if we don't finally start spending more on mental health uh you know i, I oh, frankly we should all give up you know it's one of the things that's absolutely apparent we've made it worse by the way the lockdown has gone on part of that is absolutely necessary but we need to think about getting a new set of priorities which look at the longer term and look at enhancing the well-being of all of us and reducing inequalities in that. Vicky's absolutely right. If you're young, then you know, you're two and a half times more likely to be in a sector that's been closed down. There's massive gender impacts that are happening at the moment. The kind of things I was talking about in terms of labor intensive recovery things like improving energy efficiency of the housing stock tend to be quotes jobs for the boys that have a gender bias in them. So we need to think about gender issues as we try and think about how best to come out of this recovery in a situation where we've made employing people more expensive. And hence, there's every incentive on businesses to spend more on automation, on computers, on AI, and that will have serious long-term consequences. Thank you, uh, Gus. There are, um, there's a question, uh, interesting one from Jeff Rooker about the potential contribution of the third sector, which straddles many sectors of the uh, economy. I mean, picking up on some of the things that you were just talking about, Gus, but, but have, have run through this. Uh, Vicky, do, do you think the do you think the third sector has a particular role to play in uh, in uh, response to the crisis like this? Well, if we take what uh, Gus has just said about well-being, mental health and so on, they have been uh, really important, all those uh, charities that have been helping. And of course, there has been more money being put also by the government in looking at domestic abuse, for example, um, special lines and so on. Uh, so, yes, I think the uh, philanthropy is important. Of course, I mean, the question is, is it going to be less money to go around? And of course, uh, quite a lot of wealth has been wiped out in this recession. And the one worry I have about the third sector, although it's so important, it contributes a lot and I sit on the, you know, I'm a trustee of a number of charities, um, is that in some ways we're, we have and are still assuming that they're going to do the work that the government should be doing really. And uh, that's always the concern that I've had about this. And we also know that large parts of the third sector are not very efficient um, and they don't actually work like a proper sort of business in terms of being uh, sort of accountable for like just the way they're spending. So we've had a number of, of terrible uh, um, scandals, but um, overall, obviously, they make a big contribution and it's not valued properly in terms of their contribution to GDP. I mean, I agree with Gus that there is an issue in terms of how you calculate GDP and whether it really matters. Um, but yes, they are important would be the answer. Would give. I want to just go back to the GDP issue quickly, since, uh, you know, this is one sector, the third sector, which isn't properly calculated. The amount of time and hours that people put in it, which just isn't properly uh, mm. accounted for. Um, when we're calculating productivity or anything else, um, which is really, um, I'm afraid, sort of GDP still matters because obviously it calculates also, you know, what you spend, what the output is doing. Right now, 
the surveys are not particularly good because quite a lot of people who would be filling in these forms are not there. And also when you look at sort of prices and how they're increasing, we've had to rethink all that because the basket of goods changing. So there will be quite a, a I think, change in terms of how we look at perhaps calculating GDP in the future. But the one area that we have always had difficulty with in any modeling of the sort of macro trends has been the consumer function. Uh, we just don't know how people respond. Therefore, the stuff that Gus has been talking about, understanding their, their, their uncertainties, if you like, you know, how they want to get out of this crisis and the trust that Ben talked about, all these things matter hugely in terms of what type of recovery we're going to have. Will people actually go out and spend or are they going to become bigger savers in the future? Is that going to change their attitude to anything they do in the future? If you look at other countries, uh, it seems that people have gone out and have gone out to restaurants and and uh, and really uh, are uh, perhaps less uh, risk averse than the UK seems to be. That would be quite an interesting one to dig into a little bit more and understand why that well-being function perhaps is worse here than it is elsewhere. Yes, thanks, right. Vicky. Ben, sorry, Gus, do you want to come in quickly on that? Yeah, yeah just quickly on, on uh, I completely agree with Lord Rooker. I mean, the charitable sector is really important in this. They're suffering because of uh, the funding has gone down, but they're also suffering because they can't deliver the services they'd love to deliver. And we need to understand that. Uh, I share economics and we've been doing a survey of charities to find out precisely what's happening. And surprise, surprise, it backs up those two points. Uh, I, I agree with Vicky that we need to sort out what is the right role for the charitable sector? How can we uh, help them really make an impact? And Andy Haldane and I are both working hard on actually what to do with that because Andy's done a lot of work on valuing the sector and of course Vicky's absolutely right um, if all the volunteers in the world took up prostitution GDP would rise considerably because prostitution counts uh, but voluntary work uh, is not measured at all in GDP just another example of how mad the world could be you, you, you know how to frame a soundbite there, uh, Gus. <laughs> uh, thank you. I'm gonna, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna move us on to the sort of the wiring of the state, uh, and I'll come back to you, Gus, in a in a minute. But there are lots of questions in the um, <clears throat> in the Q and A about the nature of central government, um, whether it's set up in the right way to address these long term uh, challenges. Uh, uh, not just the ones we've been talking about, but climate change. Lots of questions about climate change. Obviously, social care. Um, the the culture of the civil service, whether it's ready for the the radicalism that um, that that um, we've been talking about, um, all the way through to uh, Angela Halliday made an interesting question about whether government procurement has a different role to play. And so, in every sort of every um, bit of the state, there, there's the there's the potential for either reverting to the the status quo or um, uh, or some some quite uh, radical change. Um, uh, ben, I wonder what 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 do you think the the appetite is for for, for this uh, the public isn't obsessed about structures and that's and that's why local government restructuring has never been something that particularly fascinates the general public and and, and probably and to be honest the, the structuring of, of how Whitehall works again for the public themselves uh, isn't particularly top of their their priority they think it's all terribly inefficient etc but um, I think, I mean, the bottom line is the British state is good when there's a crisis. It's, it, you know, it's to, prior to COVID-19, and if you look at the last uh, decade, apart from getting us out of 2008, perhaps without the world economy closing down and money stopping in banks, it's great successes with the Olympics, where it sort of managed to pull it together at the last minute. It was really good. 
and terror. It did terror well. In fact, the public, hitherto, the one thing that the public would give government credit for, because remember, government is generally seen as negatively by the British public. It's at the moment, because of the crisis, it's got positive net ratings. But for most of the last 20 years, it's been negative. But actually, terror was something else it did, it did quite well. So, you know, the government, you know, I will leave it to Gus, who knows far more about it and is far more intimately connected with it than me. And the Institute for Government probably has a few points of view on this, I would suggest. But I think it's clear that it has to have a few, it's, it needs a few bold overriding goals that are then followed with rigour for some time. If you leave it to its own devices, it won't happen, would be an observation of somebody who's worked for it for 30 years, as a, at least as a supplier of research. I think uh, I could uh, I would endorse that message. And but do, I suppose, do you think coming out of that, Ben, just sticking with that a minute, is, yeah. is, this, a mo is this therefore a moment of risk for the state and, and not, not just for the, the government and the politics of it, but for the, the nature of the state itself, if it is seen to have not responded uh, well? Uh, well, yeah, well I think bro well. broadly, though, I mean, although there's criticism, um, actually satisfaction with government is up, you know, despite it's now starting to go down. But we had 90 percent at some points during the crisis supporting what the government's done. So, yes, we'll get into the inevitable. Should we have done this, that or the other later? I mean, two thirds of people say the government was too late to go into lockdown, but you've still got record levels of satisfaction with it. So I don't think it's a moment of danger for the government. Uh, it's, it's a moment for the government to take it to, to use the crisis Use digital acceleration as one of your as one of the people asking questions is to to look at how we can use the positive aspects of a quarter of people who haven't used technology in the, in the way that we're now using it today before suddenly trying online shopping, online banking. That 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 that's a positive thing. Use the seven hundred and fifty thousand people who volunteered to give up some time for the NHS. There's a great social movement that you could try and capitalise on to use some of these things for a reset and to try and give it some itself some breathing space because of as sure as sure as eggs are eggs. Otherwise, we have this you know potentially massive slump in the economy, potentially high high levels of unemployment. Uh, and but to use that, to use this almost phony war that they've they've created. It's a bit more for those of you who love World War Two. And I think I, looking at some of the people on this call, I can see some of you will be have long memories. You know, this is like the phony war after 1939, before the Blitz of 1940. We have this moment to sort of think about things. And if government can get away from whether it's hit the right number of tests, uh, you know, what's you know, what's it what's it what's it doing in care homes to start thinking about the very big picture? Maybe just maybe it could build a coalition uh, to make some really big changes, but I wouldn't bet on it. So, Gus, what what, what about the the wiring of the state? I'll, I'll chuck in another massive uh, question that I've just seen on the Q and A as well. Uh, what what are the implications for the governance of the NHS? Um, so, I mean, pick out this is it's it's too big a question uh, to deal with in uh, a, a minute or two. But 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 what, what do you think the opportunities are for central government, but also uh, the the kind of risks to uh, to to um, responding with sufficient radical radicalism, Gus? Yes, it seems like um, the public are prepared uh, for the state to play a bigger role in all sorts of things and the state is playing a bigger role and I don't think that's going to go away. I think the my my wonderful colleague in the Lords, Onora O'Neill, said people often choose to rely on the very people whom they claimed not to trust and, and in some ways you know that's that kind of fits up. People say oh I don't really trust the government but actually they rely on them and they use them a lot more. Uh, it would be a mistake to come out of this crisis thinking we need to rejig everything in order to handle this sort of crisis better. 
right it's unusual uh it's rare um yes we need to be able to cope with these sorts of things but actually we need to cope with a whole range of different things so we shouldn't just build it around this crisis i mean if you want to handle crises really well you should go for dictatorship that seems to work brilliantly you know um you know lock them down take away all human freedom you know throw away the keys um so it's not about that i would say the things that have failed number one international coordination so it's not just about individual governments but you look at the Nightingale Hospital, right? That's that's there in London on the site of the it's the Excel Centre. It's where the G20 came together when Gordon Brown as Prime Minister got the world together to actually coordinate and not go into protectionism. Now we've got a situation where everyone's hoarding their own PPE. Are they going to hoard their own vaccines? You know, we we that international coordination is just not there. So that's broken. That needs to be put right. In terms of the government, the wiring of the NHS, I mean, that's a very long and complicated issue. It's, um, you know, it has exposed some areas, certainly. I would think Public Health England's been given a very difficult job uh, of managing all sorts of different areas. For me, it highlights again that in our health system, we are biased towards the visible and the immediate. We are biased towards spending money on hospitals and doctors and not on prevention and behavioural techniques. You know, it looks like Boris Johnson's woken up to the fact that obesity is a problem. Well, brilliant. You know, there are things we can do about that. They're not about more hospitals and doctors. They're about taxes on sugary food. They're about all sorts of other things. So if we can get this approach, which starts to say the well-being of the people and the health of the people isn't all about doctors and nurses and hospitals. It's about other things. Then I think we'll start to think about how to wire the state in the right way to tackle those problems. Brilliant. I'm going to uh, squeeze in one last question, just a sentence answer from uh, each of you, which is from uh, Andrea uh, Siodmok, which is what is the one, uh, the single biggest positive thing that you think will come out of this crisis? Vicky. Uh, I think rethinking possibly the role of the states, very, very important, but actually the regionalization impact, if I can just mention very quickly, uh, we have NHS procurement centrally done, and that has been a big, big problem. So maybe there'll be some rethink about this. And then how we look at government, uh, actually trust had gone up everywhere in all countries that you can see uh, where lockdowns have been quite effective, trust of government has gone up. So we haven't necessarily got over that. What will happen afterwards is going to be, I think, very significant in terms of does it stay up there and do we behave differently as a result? And what will the role of the state be uh, going forward? Great. Ben? Well, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, I'd agree with Vicky that trust has gone up. Empirically, it tends to go back down again and normal political gravity does return once the crisis passes. But this is an opportunity to uh, finally address some of the, you know, the austerity, the, the, the byproducts of austerity of the last decade. We needed, even before this crisis, if you got people from both sides of the House of Commons and the House of Lords in a room, the experts, and talked about the challenges the state faced in the 2020s, it involved spending more money and indeed raising taxes. The government can now, you know, can now do that. And I think it will do that almost certainly. So in some ways, take advantage of the opportunity that you now have and, and do some good along the way. And finally, Gus. Uh, I'd say more community spirit, uh, people caring about each other, 
which enhances other people's well-being and their own and praise for the public sector really finally brilliant thank you thank you to uh, the panel uh, thanks for all the brilliant questions. I'm really sorry uh, that we didn't manage to get through them all. We had over uh, 80, uh, and I know you can't see them all on the uh, on the feed, but we had loads and loads of questions. I tried to group them uh, together, but sorry to those who uh, who we weren't able to get to. Um, thanks to um, PA Consulting, to, to Panos for his contribution at the beginning and uh, getting us started, but also to uh, him and his colleagues for supporting this event. And uh, thank you all for watching and see you soon. <laughs>